we study the what you might call the intellectual or philosophical history of religions, uh, we find that there tend to be two main approaches to understanding the absolute truth. Uh, there are religious traditions that do not uh, focus on philosophy. For example, polytheistic traditions generally are not philosophical <clears throat> in the sense of trying to give a systematic account of the nature of reality. Um, the fundamental real things, how they relate to each other, how they exist, where they come from, the nature of consciousness, the nature of the individual, whether the individual is ultimately a spiritual being or merely a body, why there's suffering in the world, how human beings can most, um, how they can best organize their societies to maximize human happiness and uh, spiritual rewards, however they, uh, however they think of those. So that's philosophy, systematic philosophy, and of course there are many polytheistic traditions generally not philosophical, as we see in various parts of the world, such as Greece and Rome, and even in Europe, uh, when people become philosophical, they tend to become more interested in some type of monotheism. Because uh, monotheism, the idea that there's one God, uh, is, well, there's the answer. <laughs> because the idea that there's one God is the natural um, direction, you could say, of reason. Just like, for example, there are many creatures in this world, we talk about mammals, you know, reptiles, this and that, and ultimately you can talk about just living beings. And so the, the, this search for a general explanation, this search for something which explains everything, uh, the idea that if, if nothing explains everything, nothing is explained ultimately. So when we get to monotheism, uh, there we find, in a sense, the great divide. And um, in monotheistic traditions, the uh, he's saying his own way that he really likes this lecture. <laughs> so um, the great divide is between uh, communities or thinkers that say that God is ultimately impersonal and those that say that God is ultimately personal. So by personal, uh, here we can say the idea that, for example, we are persons that God has an individual consciousness. God is not merely a collective consciousness, whatever that would be. Uh, the great American psychologist, um, William James said that we have no real experience of consciousness that doesn't belong to someone. So apart from God ourselves, that generally 
as the saying goes, as above, so below. So when we tend to think of God as impersonal, something lacking a personal identity, and certainly lacking a personal form, then we tend to think of ourselves also as ultimately impersonal. If somehow or other we come from God, if somehow or other we, our existence rests on God's existence, there's usually some account like that. Then uh, if we rest on something impersonal, if we come from something impersonal, then it's a pretty safe bet that we are ultimately impersonal. Uh, because uh, you're going to stay awake all night and not really be able to figure out how an impersonal absolute produces so many individual persons. Philosophically, uh, that's like finding the exact value of pi. So, um, so as I said, William James said, every, every consciousness that we know of belongs to someone. We don't really have experience of a collective consciousness, the idea that it's all one and, and there's a consciousness which is everyone's but really no one's because no one exists because there are no eternal persons. It, like I said, it's, it's a quagmire. It's a philosophical quagmire in personalism. But um, there is collective consciousness, social consciousness, which is not exactly the same as everyone actually being the same consciousness. Uh, to give an example of collective consciousness, uh, well, I think the, the best example I can give my own experience is a uh, dramatic moment at a Los Angeles Dodgers game when I was a kid at the Dodgers Stadium, and it was, uh, it was the bottom of the ninth inning. Dodgers were behind by one run, two outs, one person on base. And uh, I think it was Willie Davis or Tommy Davis, Eddie Davis probably. One of them hit a line drive home run over the left field wall. And, but now, here's the philosophical part of this, <laughs> apart from just random Dodger highlights. Um, I remember that as, as this ball shot out from his bat, and everyone knew that it was, you know, was going to be a home run. And everyone, including myself, leaped to their feet exactly at the same time, shouting. And uh, it was as if it was as if really there really was a collective consciousness, as if there was just that the whole stadium was full, as if everyone was sharing the same consciousness. So, but the point I want to make here <coughs> is that even that is not the same as saying that everyone's consciousness merged into each other, because we had that moment of let's say intense. Dodger fan solidarity. But of course, the next moment, we are all actually individual souls. So um, the idea that you lose your individuality, the idea that somehow, let's say, when we become enlightened, that we are no longer individual conscious persons. Um, is a radical departure from practically all of our real life experience. And, and so one can ask what, but, but this has been actually a uh, recurring um, theory of what life is like if you've reached ultimate enlightenment. 
ultimate liberation from the material world. What is life like? And this theory tends to come from people who consider themselves to be very intellectual. In all traditions, and you can find this theory in Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Sufi, Muslim traditions, it's, it's a type of, of, of thinking, it's a way of thinking that, that you find throughout world religions. And again, it tends to come from people who consider themselves to be intellectual or mystical, and it involves a rejection of individual life, of personal life. Now, in America, this is the year 2017, to the best of my knowledge. So, um, in a sense, the whole, if you look at the history of this country, and it's not just this country, if you look at the history of the West, especially, really going back uh, <coughs> to the earliest seriously documented accounts, we talk about ancient Greek civilization thousands of years ago, and there has been a spirit in the West of individualism, especially you see it in ancient Greece in contrast to the Eastern Persian Empire. There's been a spirit of individualism and uh, <coughs> freedom which has persisted. So perhaps for that reason, the idea that you give up all your freedom, because being free, making free choices presupposes that you exist. If there's no you, you're not going to make, make choices, are you? You have to exist as an individual person. And so to, to use one's individual free consciousness to choose what really amounts to philosophical and mystical suicide uh, has not really caught on so much in the West. I mean, there's, it, it always has a certain market, and you know some people always think that's the way to go, but it, it and interestingly, it hasn't even caught on in the East that much either. But you find me take Buddhism, for example. Um, first thing, of course, we have to keep in mind about Buddhism is it has many, many different forms. It has many different forms. Uh, there are many forms of Christianity, as we know, Eastern Orthodox, in various forms of that, and uh, of course, Roman Catholic, sort of innumerable Protestant versions of, of Christianity. And so, and yet in Buddhism, there's probably even a greater variety for the simple reason that if you look at the Christian side, um, very early on, they became very concerned about doctrine. And so if you look at the first great Christian councils, they disputed doctrine, whether this is the doctrine of the Trinity, this or that. And eventually, uh, they were adopted by the Roman Empire. The Empire didn't want a mess, you know, theological mess. They just had a, called a bunch of bishops, had them figure out what the credo was, and anyone that didn't agree with it, you know, was in serious trouble. So that was that. In, on, the, on the Buddhist side, however, Buddhist is fam Buddha is famous for having uh, refused to discuss metaphysics. Metaphysics is a word that Aristotle gave us. It means what comes after physics. And physics here just means exploring the material world. And when you want to go beyond the material world, talk about the soul or even values, which are metaphysical, or God, that's metaphysics. So uh, Buddha <coughs> refused to discuss these things. Uh, contrary to what some people think, Buddha actually never denied the existence of an eternal soul. He just said it wasn't the body, it wasn't the mind, it wasn't, you know, 
military intelligence. He went down the list and said what it wasn't, but he never said there wasn't a soul. He just wouldn't talk about it, and he wouldn't talk about a god. And so therefore, you look at the early, um, early Buddhist councils where they met to try to unify. They were actually not about doctrine. Unlike the Christian councils, they weren't about philosophy. They were really about monastic practice, like how many times can you eat a day, or can women be monks, and things like that. So, uh, in any case, even though Buddha himself didn't want to talk about metaphysics, some of his followers did, and there arose this very um, aggressive doctrine that there's no soul, there's no individual soul, that that's an illusion, but and the point I want to make, and I think this is the inter interesting point, it ultimately uh, didn't win. If you look at Mahayana Buddhism, which is today 85% of living Buddhists, um, I remember when I taught Buddhism, actually, part of it was teaching at Religions of India at the University of Florida. I used this little textbook, which comes from Oxford in England, Oxford Press. And the author said that one of the universal aspects of Buddhism today is the acceptance of some kind of continuing personal identity after death. <clears throat> so despite all these great efforts, and we have bodhisattvas who are certain people, and there are all kinds of uh, Amitabha, there's all, there are all kinds of Buddhist saviors <coughs> and uh, saints and throughout the tradition. The Buddhism, which is marketed in the West, uh, tends to be a little different, but I'm referring to the Buddhism that actually became the world religion. So, um, so impersonalism, as we can call it, the idea that God is ultimately impersonal, which means that uh, it's unlikely God created the world, because if God created, I mean, if God was not a person, why would I mean, create, why, why create a personal world if you're not a person? First of all, God couldn't want to create because only people desire things. Those that, I mean, something that's not a person doesn't have a plan or a program or like, hey, I'm not a person, but I think I'll do this. Yeah, that's, that's not really consistent. So if God is impersonal and yet the world is here, then God couldn't rationally be the creator of a personal world. So who did create it? And if someone or something else created it, then how is God God? It, it's philosophically very messy. And it's, you know, many people have tried to clean it up for thousands of years and it's still messy. So, and yet, so, so in, in the Western world, and actually really in most of the world, uh, the, the appeal of a personal divine being has been sort of irresistible. And if you look throughout world religions, that is really what people have been drawn to over and over again throughout history. And of course, this is related to how we look upon our own existence. Uh, suicide is not healthy, even if it's, let's say, mystical suicide or philosophical suicide. And so my, my own teacher, Prabhupada, used to give the example that um, if someone has a pain in their hand, very an unbearable pain, I mean, one option is to, of course, have your hand cut off. Probably not your first choice. Your first choice would be just to take, remove the pain, remove the problem, and keep your hand. So in the same way, 
uh, how do we deal with our personal life? How do we deal with the fact that we find ourselves in this world as individual, personal, conscious beings? Um, what's the best use of our life? How can we maximize our own happiness and happiness of others? Uh, are we actually capable of understanding the world that we find ourselves in? Can we understand who we are? <coughs> and is there any way in which we can ultimately affect our destiny? For example, uh, we have massive evidence that material bodies die. And so um, it's extremely <coughs> likely that our bodies are going to die. And yet, is this our death? Do we, at that point, do we stop existing or do we continue to exist? If we continue to exist, how do we exist? So these are, um, these things are generally not discussed on uh, morning television in this country <coughs> or afternoon or evening or late night television. But actually, uh, these are the topics that we should be discussing if we take ourselves seriously. If we take ourselves seriously. Sometimes people show a certain bravado by saying, I'm not afraid of death. They say, I'm not afraid of death. I mean, of course, if you have a strong spiritual conviction, then you may not be afraid of death because of your wisdom. But if one lacks this wisdom and just wants to brag that I'm not afraid of death, so I don't need a spiritual tradition, um, it's kind of a bluff when it comes down to it. And also, it follows logically that if you do not place any negative value on the loss of something, you don't place any positive value on the possession of it. If you can lose something and it really doesn't bother you at all, it must not have been very important to you. I think that, that follows logically. And so to say that I don't care about not existing must mean that one doesn't place a particularly high value on existing, which is kind of sad since there's a lot of interesting things to do if you exist. So that's, in Krishna consciousness, what we're presenting is... Um, <laughs> an ancient body of wisdom, you'll be happy to know we're not experimenting on it or just trying this out to see if it works. Fortunately, this uh, philosophy, this spiritual practice has been pre-tested for <coughs> several, several thousand years. So, and, and it's worked in every century and in every decade. So it's not, you're not a, like a guinea pig for some mystic process that's, that I just, someone else just invented and wants to try out or Maybe I can use this to become famous. That's not really what's going on here. It's uh, simply faithfully, trying to faithfully transmit to you a very powerful spiritual tradition which has had extraordinary appeal uh, for a very long time. If we look at the international landscape, like the sort of look at the history of religion on Earth, uh, I think it would be fair to say certainly looking at the Middle East, Islamic countries for the last, oh, you know, approximately 15, 1450 years, Christianity, which has existed somewhat longer, even Judaism. And if we talk about religious freedom, um, where do we find that human beings in significant numbers actually have the opportunity to make their own choices about religion? 
or that people, for example, had choices to make because if you live in some remote part of the world where never no one's ever heard of anything else, then you know there's nothing on the menu. So uh, if we look at situations where people have had choices and they have had um, the freedom to choose, not only are do they know about various traditions, but actually the freedom to choose. Uh, I think without question that uh, that India, good old India, um, is distinguished in this regard. As I pointed out, I can't, I've been traveling so much. I, I said this somewhere in the last week, but anyway, if you look at it, there there are three factors in India which make it probably the best place in the world to study the variety of religion. Just that, and and the reasons are number one because of India's geographic and meteorological situation, India uh, has always sustained a large population for the reason that there's an abundance of good arable land. It has the best natural irrigation, irrigation system on earth. If you just Google India river map, you'll see it immediately. It has the best natural irrigation system in the world, partially because uh, you have the Himalayan mountains and this huge snowfall, and the water comes down, but even in South India, I mean, it's just, you'll see it, just look at the map. So India has always been able to sustain a large population relative to the rest of the world. Secondly, uh, the earliest documented evidence we have about India, which is in the Rig Veda, many thousands of years ago, indicates that there was always religious freedom. We don't really have a historical period in Indian history where people did not have religious freedom. The third thing we can say is that for some reason or another, which, whatever, uh, there's always been an extraordinary amount of interest in spirituality and religion in India. So if you put these th three things together, you have a lot of people a lot of people interested in spirituality and religion and the freedom to make their own choices, then what you'd expect to get, and what you do get in fact, is a, probably the largest variety of religious and spiritual expression in the world. And what's interesting about that, well, various things are interesting about that, is that in, in this, uh, pardon this crass expression, this free religious market, um, where <laughs> You know, natural market forces were at play. In other words, uh, I mean, because market here just means that someone is offering something and someone else may want it. So they somehow, something is exchanged. And so in this, in this free environment, the overwhelmingly, the big winner in history was Krishna. And uh, the evidence of this is overwhelming. For example, the most important sacred text in India that everyone knows and everyone accepts is the Bhagavad Gita, which is spoken by Krishna. The Bhagavad Gita is part of a much, much larger historical epic, sacred history called Mahabharata, which is probably the single most influential narrative in South Asia and even beyond South Asia and parts of Southeast Asia and elsewhere for thousands of years. And the main hero of Mahabharata is 
Krishna. The other great historic, great sacred narrative, which has also had an extraordinary influence, everything from theater to music to the names you give your children to the stories that just tell people who they are and how they should live and what an ideal government would be and what the ultimate goal of their life is. In other words, that's what I mean by influence. Uh, that other very, very influential work is Ramayana, the story of Rama, who is considered to be an avatar of Krishna, of course. Uh, the very word avatar. Uh, ava in Sanskrit means downward, and tara means crossing. So the avatar is one who crosses down, uh, and it refers to a divine being who crosses down from the spiritual plane down to our material world, our obviously material world. And so one who crosses down, who descends, is called avatara. So the, the notion of a divine avatar has been very powerful throughout uh, history in that part of the world, South Asia, and elsewhere. And now it's also becoming a concept here. And if you look at, well, who is the avatar? Actually, it's Krishna. Although you may read, typically in Hinduism, there's three gods that you know Vish that uh, Brahma creates and Vishnu maintains and Shiva destroys. Or, or in Hinduism, the three most popular objects of worship are Shiva, the goddess Shakti, and Krishna or Vishnu. In fact, what we can call avatar narratives or avatar theology has really been about Krishna. So the whole understanding of the divine descending into this world, playing in this world, acting in this world, has really been about Krishna. Scholars also say that the earliest megalithic temples uh, were temples to Vishnu. For example, we even have a huge, that huge famous temple in Angkor Wat in uh, Cambodia, and it's a temple to Krishna, or Vishnu. So. Uh, the earliest memory or the earliest uh, record we have of a European visitor to India taking up what you could crudely call Hinduism um, is a column, Heliodorus, who was a Greek visitor to India, an ambassador to India uh, before the time of Jesus, and he joined the Hare Krishna movement. He, um, before the time of Jesus, and erected this column in honor of Krishna. So um, it, it sort of goes on and on. So there, there's, according to Western scholars, you know, regular academic scholars, of all the Hindus, uh, two-thirds to three-fourths of them are Vaishnavas. They accept Krishna, Vishnu, another form of Krishna. So this has been enormously it's actually been, you could say, the heart of a whole part of the world. And uh, so what we are presenting here, like what is, how, what we are presenting, how does that relate to everything I just said before? Um, just as there are various Christian denominations, um, in India, there are various Vaishnava denominations. Some of them are, are more prominent much more prominent. There's really a few that are very prominent. In Southeast India, followers of the great teacher Ramanuja. In Southwest India, followers of Madhvacharya. In North India, there's the Pushti Marg, the Vallabhacharya. 
Uh, and then what is called the Hare Krishna movement is um, ultimately, it's called Gaudiya Vaishnavism because it, it began in West Bengal. And it's uh, now by far the most, uh, what's the word, most influential or, or expansive manifestation of Vaishnavism in the world. And of course, Prabhupada is responsible for much of that. So uh, regarding avatars, this movement uh, was begun by a young man, actually, a young person named Nimai Pandit, who uh, is seen as the avatar or descent of Krishna in this age. So Krishna, th there's a very famous verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which almost every Hindu knows, if you say the first few words, they'll complete the verse for you all over India. And that is, Yada Yada Hi Dharmasya Glanir Bhavati Bharata. See, you know it. Avyutanama Dharmasya Tadatmanam Sajamiham. That's Krishna speaking. Krishna says, whenever there is a decline, Yada Yada of Dharma. Dharma means justice. It means virtue. It means adherence to the law of the universe. So that's uh, because if people adhere to the law of the universe, there will be justice and there will be virtue. Uh, the word dharma comes from a Sanskrit root, dhar, which means to sustain or hold. And therefore, dharma means principles that sustain higher consciousness, principles that sustain civilization, that sustain justice. So Krishna says that whenever dharma, which and dharma is ultimately the law of God, whenever dharma declines, <clears throat> collapsing, that and abhyutanama dharmasya, and adharma, adharma, injustice, uh, behavior which goes against virtue, behavior which goes against the universal law and therefore disturbs either one planet or more planets or the universe. Whenever adharma is rising, then Krishna says, tada, then, atmanam sajamiham, I appear in myself. So this is the very famous sort of the avatar section of Bhagavad Gita. And then Krishna describes paritanaya sadhinam. I come, my purpose in coming is to uh, to save, to rescue. Sadhus. And here the word sadhu means good people. It's simply good, virtuous, good human beings. Not that belong to a particular religion, but just good people anyway. Paritanaya sadhinam vinashaya chatushkritam. Krishna says, though, and to remove those who are doing evil, who would say are just doing bad things, and dharma samstapanartai, and for the purpose of reestablishing dharma, justice, virtue, or adherence to the law of the universe. So, interestingly, uh, you could say, what is the law of the universe? And it sounds good. Uh, essentially, if you study Bhagavad Gita, one, I think, could make a very strong case that the law of the universe is the law of reciprocity. I mean, think about it. 
What is justice? Justice is quid pro quo. Justice means that people get what they actually deserve. People receive, whether it's a reward, whether it's punishment, people get what they actually deserve. They're, not, they're neither rewarded nor punished unfairly. What is a good relationship? It's one in which people reciprocate. If you love someone and that person does not return your love, probably not, you're not going to have a great time. And so uh, reciprocation. You know, what are fair practices in business as opposed to predatory capitalism? It means that people give uh, real value. You give somebody something and they give you back equal value. So it's, if you think of reciprocity in terms of love, friendship, <coughs> uh, justice, in terms of just the way the world works, uh, economic justice, political justice, reciprocity, fair re reciprocity. Christian says ultimately makes the world go right. And not only on earth, but actually in the universe. So, so this brings us to the topic of the word in Bhagavad Gita is yajna. We translate it as offering, sacrifice. It means that when we receive gifts, rather than uh, pretend uh, or ignore that actually they come from somewhere, they're doesn't just happen to be oxygen in the earth. It doesn't just happen to be food on the earth. It actually comes from somewhere. It doesn't just happen to rain. I mean, you can, you can obviously science can master the mechanics of it because things in this material world follow certain causal patterns and therefore we can give a deterministic picture of material nature and say it rains because of this. The only problem is when it doesn't rain, you can't figure out why. So if, if you look at you know, studies of weather, if you look at all you know, studies of the environment, what we find is that it is not really a deterministic science. Whenever life is involved, or whenever large-scale things in the universe are involved, it, it's not entirely deterministic. Even if I know uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Svaputa, who's great, actually a great scientist, genius scientist, and he pointed out that just like, for example, with your naked eye, uh, you can only see things that are so small. If something is smaller than that, you can't see it. You need a microscope. But again, there are limits. And so with science, you can measure something to a certain level of precision. And of course, that level of precision uh, is finite. It's not infinite. Science cannot measure things with infinite precision. And mathematically, if you... If you observe the limits of precision, like we just can't be more precise than this, even though it's extremely precise, then the gap between the limits of science and the ultimate absolute measurement of something, within that gap, mathematically, there's actually room for the hand of God. So in other words, one can have a, a, a science as precise as humanly possible but science cannot, even in their most deterministic models, cannot really eliminate the space in which there can be uh, the intervention of will, the intervention of conscious will. So um, Krishna calls this cycle that we receive gifts, whether you receive gifts from your parents or from a spouse or for, you know, from anyone, the government, when you pay taxes, 
when we receive, we have to give back. Krishna calls this a chakra. In the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2. Chakra, well, you've heard this many in Raja Yoga, they use this word chakra. Ultimately, the word chakra means a cycle or a circle or a disc, you know, any shape like that. Okay? And it's, it's used in certain types of yoga. You know, we all know that, talk about chakras. But, but ultimately, the original fundamental meaning is a, a, a cycle, a circle, something like that. And so Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, evam pravartitam chakram, that a chakra, a cycle, or a circle, has been made to turn, literally. Has been made to turn around. Evam pravartitam chakram. And nanu vartiyatihaja, and one who does not keep the cycle turning. One who does not keep the cycle turning. Uh, Aghayur. Their Ayur, you know from Ayurveda, Ayur means duration of life, actually. So Ayurveda literally means knowledge of how to prolong life. So Krishna and Aga means offense. So Krishna says their their life, their whole life, is an, an offense to the universe. If they do not keep the cycle turning. So we'll see what is Krishna talking about. Ayur, because Indriya Ramo. Because they're living for nothing more profound, nothing more serious than just to gratify their senses. Aghai or Indriya Ramo, which are obviously skin deep. You know, what was there a song by the Temptations? Beauty's only it's not skin deep or is skin deep? Or? That's in that song. Oh, what, what's the line? Beauty's only skin deep. So if you're looking for a lover, don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I want you to know that that was actually unrehearsed. <laughs> well, I practice a lot. <laughs> so, um, so Krishna says that Ayur Indriyarama Mogam Partha Sajivati. Krishna says such a person literally lives in vain. Such a person lives in vain because they never discovered who they really are, what life is really about, what real pleasure is. So what cycle is Krishna talking about? A cycle has been made to turn around. If you don't keep it turning, then you waste your life. It's the cycle of receiving and giving back. It's the cycle of receiving and giving back. And if you walk into a store and load up your cart and just walk out and go away, <laughs> I mean, you can say, well, that's just capitalism. No, actually, it's not. I mean, read history a little bit. It's, it definitely predates capitalism. I mean, the idea that when you take something, you should also give something. <coughs> and we're given a lot. For one thing, we're given life. There's, there's a nice thing about a, an atheistic picture of the universe. It, uh, it eliminates any need for gratitude. And some people find gratitude demeaning because if you're grateful, it means you have to acknowledge that someone actually did something for you and didn't do everything yourself. I explained yet last night that actually philosophically atheism is a non-starter. Agnosticism is more interesting. Because if someone says, I don't know, that's, yeah, that's reasonable. But if someone asserts there's no God, it's actually self-contradictory. Because as I said last night, there's no God, no one knows everything. No one knows everything. No one knows that there's a God. 
So how can someone say no one knows everything, but I know there's no God? It's philosophical. It's, it's, it's a little silly. So anyway, this receiving and giving back. It's like, for example, some people in relationships. They take, but they don't give back. They're not able to actually reciprocate and give back. They're unable to appreciate what's the love that's being given to them. So it really does make the world go round. This and 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 really, that's the heart of Dharma. Because if you look, I mean, there are many, many. There are all these uh, actually scriptures or all these texts in Sanskrit which are called Dharma Shastras or law books, you know, principles of Dharma. And there's lots of dharmas. And there's, for example, there's Raja Dharma, Dharma for kings, for royalty. There are uh, all the different groups in life, you know, the students, the married people. They all have their dharma. The Brahmins have their dharma. Everyone has dharma. Uh, but the essence of it all. Do you want some water? The essence of it all is reciprocity. It's just receiving and fairly giving back, or even lovingly giving back. So I want to just end by discussing briefly why is it difficult for people, or at least a lot of people, to um, give themselves to uh, a personal truth. Even though we know we are personal, we are personal, and um, so it stands to reason that we come from some personal source. It's a very old principle of logic and a sound one that a an effect gives us information about the cause. That's actually the basis of every science on earth. It's the basis basis actually of automobile insurance investigators. It's like, you know, if, if there's a there's an accident, fender bender, and there's skid marks and dents, you know, they come out there and take pictures. Why? They're assuming a logical principle they may not be aware of, that an effect reveals the cause. That's why, for example, <laughs> medical research study diseases. Why? Because the effect ultimately should reveal its own cause. That's what historians assume when they study events like there's a war, there's an economic upturn or downturn. Why did that happen? You start with the event and then work your way back, assuming that the effect reveals the cause if you look close enough. So we ourselves are an effect. We, so if we look at ourselves, we should be able to find reliable information about the cause of our existence. And what we find, what is most striking about us, if we all look at ourselves, is uh, that we're persons that we are conscious persons with free will. So why then is it difficult for most people to really give themselves to a personal God? Um, there are different reasons. For one thing, there's, okay, there's a type of uh, philosophical skepticism. Because when we conceive of a personal God, like what would that God look like, male, female, this or that, uh, there's a tendency for people to project something of themselves onto the deity. This, this, and so we're, we're afraid of just, you know, I don't want to surrender to someone else's projection. This idea was first given, as far as I know in the world, about 2,400 years ago, 2,500 years ago, by a 
pre-Socratic philosopher named Xenophanes. Socrates was such a game changer that all the philosophers before him were called pre-Socratics. So there was a philosopher called Xenophanes who said that, hey, everybody, guess what? If you look at paintings or sculptures with Greek gods, they look like Greeks. And if you look at the gods with Thracians, who are sort of northern Greece, kind of to the Albanians, they look like Thracians. And if you look at Egyptian gods, they look like Egyptians, and so on and so forth. And then he said, he, I think he, he believed he was being really clever here. He said, if horses and oxen and lions had hands and can draw pictures, we'd have gods that look like horses and oxen and lions. So uh, anyway, that was Anophanes. He uh, was probably satisfied, you know, really pleased with that argument. Problem is, it's not exactly a great argument. Uh, and I'll explain why it's not a great argument. Although it is kind of a standard argument. Um, let's consider another form of life, like trees. Oh, what time is it? Oh, how much time? Okay, five more minutes, and then uh, you have to vote whether I come back next week. <laughs> <sighs> so, if I do, I'll have another song. Very briefly, um, if you look at trees, if you look at the history of art, um, you can see trees have been painted in many different ways, many different artistic styles, in different centuries by different artists. You know, realism. Impressionism, this art, that art. But the so we, we know that different individual artists in different <coughs> communities uh, in, in, uh, projected something of their own aesthetics onto trees. And yet, it would be ridiculous to conclude that trees don't exist. If someone said, look at the history of art, we see that you know, people paint trees differently in different cultures, therefore there, there are no, trees don't exist. Actually, it's just the opposite. If we see different cultures painting pictures of trees in their own way, it proves that there really are trees. And we see a fam what's called a family resemblance between all these different styles. It, they're all trees. And the fact that they project something of their own aesthetics doesn't change the fact that there really are trees. And so the fact that people around the world uh, have roughly, you know, roughly similar idea that there's a god, even if they depict that god in their own way, it tends to prove God does exist rather than he doesn't. And so, anyway, I'm running out of time. And uh, so I just want to leave you a few thoughts. That, so so that why is it difficult? I think because there's types of philosophical skepticism. We also are, you know, all of us have our own pride. The idea of giving myself to someone who's perhaps infinitely greater than me and therefore may overwhelm me may totally uh, dwarf me, what will become of me, what of my pride, what of my independence, what of my freedom. Uh, I think all these fears or doubts about entering into a serious relationship with a supreme being are ultimately unfounded uh, if, we, if we study further. So uh, that's what we invite you to do. So thank you for your attention. Special thanks to Suresh for the song. <laughs> And uh, Hare Krishna. <laughs>